Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. One step forward and one step back. Final approval for Pfizer's vaccine. Congress moves forward on spending, but tragedy mars an already difficult pullout from Afghanistan. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We begin this week with the Fed. In his remarks to the Jackson Hole Symposium, Chair Powell did nothing to get in the way of some tapering of the Fed's bond buying by the end of the year. At the FOMC's recent July meeting, I was of the view, as were most participants, that if the economy evolved broadly as anticipated, it could be appropriate to start reducing the pace of asset purchases this year. For more on what Chair Powell said and didn't say, we check in with former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. I was struck, for example, that he didn't say anything about the housing sector. That's the largest part of the consumer price indices. I saw a statistic, Bloomberg actually had it the other day, that said on average when a new tenant moves into a rented residence, they're paying 17% more than the old tenant. That suggests a lot of rental price inflation. If you look at owner-occupied houses, the prices are taking off. Uh, None of that has been reflected yet in our price indices. And yet, on any common sense definition, that's surely inflation. And so my guess is you'll start to see the housing component of inflation show up as rising pretty rapidly. Or if you don't, it'll reflect defects in the way we create uh, the price indices. I, the chairman mentioned rightly 
uh, that we've got record levels of job openings and workers are turning over very fast, workers are quitting uh, their jobs, I'd have thought that all of that would be a signal that in a labor shortage economy, you'd start be starting to see much more rapid wage increases than you'd seen historically, but that that was a process that would take a certain amount of time. He was more serene um, about uh, all of that. He was referencing that we had had 4% unemployment um, before COVID without rapidly accelerating inflation. And he was right about that, of course. But I see that we're having far more structural change in the economy as businesses rethink their business models when people aren't going to be coming to the office, as people rethink their lives after a year without uh, commuting, as the whole structure of the economy changes. And I think with all that structural change, you're likely to see some substantial increase in the level of unemployment that the economy can sustain without excessive uh, inflation. So there's no certainties, but I think the inflation risks are uh, graver than those that the chairman uh, recognized. I think that the toxic side effects of QE are rather greater than uh, the chairman recognized. So in the range of places where this speech seemed likely to come down, I think this came down in a relatively uh, good place from my point of view, pointing towards a taper uh, this year. But in terms of the issues I've been concerned about for quite some time, that we're kind of making a bit of a paradigm uh, error. Uh, I didn't expect that the speech was going to represent a deviation from the paradigm, and I don't think it did. So, so Larry, the day before Jay Powell gave his speech, uh, you wrote an essay in the Washington Post in which you really took on the question of quantitative easing. You mentioned inflation, which you just talked about, but also some of those toxic effects, which included things like the tenor of the debt, something you've talked on this program before, that overall the federal debt, we're actually going into the short side when we should be going to the long end. Uh, and also asset bubbles and pumping money in the economy by giving it into financial assets. Tell us about why you think that would be wrong. And maybe as important, do you think QE should go to zero? Yeah, I think QE, I think the question is like, as I use the analogy in the column, it's like withdrawing from Afghanistan. Uh, it's pretty clear that after 20 years, the right thing was for the United States not to be uh, continuing in a war fighting mode in Afghanistan. but. You can't do you can't get there necessarily overnight as we're learning painfully. And in the same way, I think we clearly should have uh, zero QE, which doesn't mean we can get there uh, overnight or we can get there with a uh, drastic lurch. Uh, why? Uh, every homeowner in America is trying to lock in a long term mortgage rather than moving towards a floating rate mortgage. The government should think the same uh, way and be terming out the debt. What QE does by having the Fed issue interest-bearing bank reserves to buy up longer-term debt, when those interest reserves can float uh, upwards, 
it's shortening the maturity of the debt. Given the epic levels of debt we have and given the very high levels of fiscal uncertainty we have, why would we want to uh, be terming in uh, the debt right now? Thank you so much. That's our special contributor to Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, we talk with former Fed Governor Dan Tarullo of Harvard about the politics of reappointing Jay Powell and whether there should be more coordination between the Fed and the Treasury. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was a big week for banks, central and otherwise, as Bank of America's longtime head of investment banking and COO Tom Montag announced his retirement, leaving a big hole and raising questions about succession at the bank. And Fed Chair Jay Powell appeared at the Jackson Hole Symposium amid speculation about his future as well. We spend most of our time worrying about the independence of the Fed from all political influence. But is that realistic? And if it were possible, would it be the right thing given the enormous influence the Fed can have over the economy and our lives? Dan Tarullo served on the Federal Reserve Board with Jay Powell. He is now a professor at the Harvard Law School. So, Dan, thank you so much for being with us. So address that question. I mean, we have a lot of influence of the Fed right now on our day to day lives as well as the economy. Is there a role for some sort of a political factor here? And is it possibly healthy for Jay Powell to be thinking, you know, I do need to think about reappointment? Well, David, you know, um, Bill Martin, the, the, one of the famous past chairs of the Fed for whom one of the Fed board buildings is named, characterized the position of the Fed as uh, the Federal Reserve was in the government. Uh, it was independent in the government. It was not independent of the government. And what that, is, that, that means is that the relationship between the Fed and democratically accountable branches of government, the president and the Congress, is, is an issue of ongoing importance. Uh, so if you had a system whereby the Fed were self-perpetuating and each chair chose his or her successor, that might make some monetary policy people happy, but it would really strain any notion of the Fed being accountable ultimately to the Congress, and as you know, Congress has uh, the powers in Article I of the Constitution that allow the creation of the Fed. So I think what we see with the four-year appointment term, what we see with the requirements for testimony, are ways in which Congress has tried to provide some political responsiveness, some political accountability, without making the Fed 
uh, adhere to the day-by-day -day wishes of the administration. Yeah, and st stopping short of a day-to-day -day coordination of the administration, apart from Congress and the Fed, what about the Treasury and the Fed? We had Larry Summers on earlier in this program saying there's an issue of the tenor of the debt right now, given what they're doing with bond buying. In fact, we're sort of going more short-term and the debt doesn't make sense. Should there be some mechanism for more coordination? Not control, but coordination. Well, I mean, in, in fact, and, and I assume that this is going on between Janet Yellen and Jay Powell, there's, there's always been a weekly lunch usually, sometimes breakfast, between the Fed chair and the Treasury secretary, where they go over a range of issues. Uh, those meetings can be more frequent in periods of stress, obviously. But th th even in normal times, fiscal policy and monetary policy are dependent on one another. And in less normal times or, or new kinds of times, the relationships between the two are probably sometimes harder to parse. And so it does call for at least more communication between Treasury and the Fed. I mean, something that people may have forgotten is that for most of the good part of the history of the Fed, there was a kind of subordination to the Treasury Department that formally ended in 1951. But the interest of the administration and often of Congress in keeping interest rates low is an ongoing interest. Uh, and the Fed always needs to be in a position of deciding what its posture is vis-a-vis -vis current fiscal policy. Dan, we all heard from the current chair, Jay Powell, part of this uh, uh, Jackson Hole Symposium. A year ago at this same symposium, as I recall, the chair announced a new framework for determining monetary policy based on really being willing to go above the 2% number on uh, inflation. Some people now, including Larry Summers, are saying, you know, that framework maybe was never a good idea, but it sure isn't now because it was dealing with the demand side issue and now it was supply side. Is it possible the Fed has sort of painted itself in a bit of a corner, corner and gotten too stubborn on its monetary policy by having that framework? I, I don't think so. I mean, look, there are issues in the execution of the framework, which I'll get to in a moment. But it, it seemed pretty clear to a lot of people, including people who were worried about secular stagnation, that the Fed framework, which had prevailed in the pre-global financial crisis period, needed to be changed. And what I think you saw last year was not really a radical break, but instead the culmination of an evolution of the Fed's thinking about the relationship between employment and inflation. I think that difficulty has been that the Fed at that time expected that it was going to have a period of somewhat sluggish growth in which it could fill out its meaning to maximum employment and how long inflation had to be above 2%. And with, this, with the amount of fiscal stimulus we've had, the quick recovery in the economy, I think the Fed had, was backfooted a bit. And it's perhaps been a little less um, nimble in adapting to the new circumstances and describing what those uh, metrics mean under these circumstances. But I, don't, I actually don't think it's the framework itself that's the problem. And indeed, I, I tend to agree with those who think that periodically the Fed should revisit its framework, not because the framework sets monetary policy, but because it sets the framework for discussing monetary policy. So, Dan, just briefly here at the end, I wonder whether Jay Powell would have picked this time to give a major address that all the markets and all the pundits would be paying attention for monetary policy if there weren't Jackson Hole. And that leads to the question, why does Jackson Hole exist? Well, I mean, the historical answer is the former Federal Reserve Bank of uh, Kansas City president 
started it in 1981, invited Paul Volcker, and Paul Volcker came. And since then, it, it's been kind of the centerpiece of the summer for, for uh, monetary policy. Um, I think, the, you know, the traditional issues people have raised around it, David, one, you know, should you have it at a vacation spot? I mean, it's a national park. It's still a vacation spot. Two, the preferential access that some reporters and some academics and some even market actors get. Um, I don't think people would be at all worried about that if the chair were not there for two and a half, not, wasn't this year, of course, because it was virtual, but normally the chair is there for two and a half days. And that's, you know, that's the big light in the backyard that attracts the moths. Uh, <laughs> and, and so the question really does become, should there be something like that that does give the preferential access? Let me just add one thing. From the board, the Federal Reserve Board's own position, it's a mixed blessing. It's a nice um, vehicle for getting across a big message when you want to. Yeah. But oftentimes, the, right. the Fed chair is, doesn't particularly want to get yeah. a big message and doesn't yeah. want a lot of anticipation. Yeah. And to the degree that and they could, feel they have to go, it kind of puts them on the spot. And Dan could have another occasion. Thank you so much to Dan Troll of Harvard, the former Fed governor. Coming up, the revolution that's coming to the auto industry with all the challenges and all the opportunities with Mary Barra, chair and CEO of General Motors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We were in Detroit this week and had the opportunity to visit General Motors headquarters and sit down with the company's chair and CEO, Mary Barra. In a few minutes, you'll hear our discussion about electric vehicles and the future of GM. But first, as the Delta variant spreads across the country, I asked her about the steps she is taking to keep her employees safe. We've been following the safety protocols of the appropriate social distancing, wearing masks, screening, and it's worked quite well. Uh, because of uh, the outbreak of the Delta variant, we are now back into wearing masks in the U.S., and it varies around the world based on what's happening. And our employees have just done a phenomenal job of following our safety protocols. So we continue to evaluate all options of what we can do because we know getting everyone vaccinated is going to be critical to stopping the, you know, the different variants uh, of the disease. Right now, we're also very much focused on education because, you know, there's a lot of myths out there or or a misinformation where people are making decisions to not get the vaccine based on bad information. So we also are running an education campaign as well. Uh, so uh, to be clear, do you know the vaccination status of your employees? Are you asking that question? Are you asking them to tell you if they're vaccinated? We are re uh, requesting uh, in the United States and we're working to do that around the globe, obviously following the local laws or country laws. And so we are working on that right now and that will inform the decisions that we make as we move forward. Uh, so, uh, and masks, everybody needs to wear masks? In our facilities, whether it's our manufacturing plants, warehouses, offices, masks are required whether you're vaccinated or not. Uh, so t talk to us also about unions and the role of unions in all this. First of all, uh, is it okay to require vaccinations with the UAW? Uh, are they resisting that? Are they with that? Are they united with you on this? 
Well, you know, first of all, I would say in working to make sure our workforce is safe, the UAW has been an absolute fantastic partner on being data-driven, following the advice from the CDC, and that's, you know, really, I think, what has allowed us to have the very successful protocols to not only protect lives, but to protect livelihoods. And so, you know, as we look at what the right thing to do as it relates to the vaccine, we'll work with the unions, and, and that will be something that we negotiate with them or work with them to decide what the right thing to do is. Do you try to have the same rules for the hourly employees as for the salaried? We, we do, but we also re really respect the fact that some of our workforce is represented not only by the UAW, but with other unions around the globe. And it's an important part to have that dialogue as part of the, the contractual process. Where is GM on bringing people back into the office? This is a hot topic all through U.S. industry. Certainly in New York, there's a whole debate about banks, for example. Where are you in bringing your people back to the office? Well, several months ago, we rolled out what we call work appropriately. And for those who don't necessarily have to be at work to do their jobs, first, I want to give a big shout out to all the people, whether they're in our, our, our manufacturing facilities, warehouses, R&D, uh, labs, design. Thank you for coming to work every day and following the protocols so you can do your work safely. For the portion of our workforce that um, doesn't necessarily always have to be in the office, it's work appropriately and we're leaving it to the individual and their leader to decide where can you do your best work. And so far it's been very well received by our employees. Uh, going back to the unions for a moment, let me ask a broader question about electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. We saw President Biden again with you at the White House. And the head of the UAW was there, mm -hmm. very specifically involved, and the president talked a fair amount about the role of union workers in this process. Uh, is the union uh, uh, help in moving faster EVs, or can it be a hindrance? How is it working? Because sometimes unions have not always been progressive in adopting new technologies. Well, I can only speak to the relationship that we have with the UAW and talking about the technology. And frankly, it's opportunities for growth, and it's opportunities to make sure that the workforce that they represent, our workforce, that they have these opportunities we go forward. And with what we're doing at Factory Zero um, and other plants around the world, are and, and specifically in the U.S., we're making sure we provide the training so they'll be part of our all-electric future. So I think it's very positive right now. Uh, so as you look forward to this future that you clearly have crafted and you've laid out in detail, and let's be honest, it's, it's going well into the future. Uh, in success, it's going to last well past you and me as a practical matter. Uh, as you look at it, what is the thing that you worry the most about? What could be a potential hindrance to achieving what needs to be achieved? Well, one of the things I talk about, I feel very confident we have the right strategy and we have the, the adaptability that if we have to make changes and tweaks here and there, we will. But it's speed, speed of execution. And that's what I talk about to the, our, our team all the time and making sure we're getting out of our own way and getting rid of bureaucracy so we can move quickly to achieve this vision. Uh, so uh, you, you have had a wonderful run at General Motors. Tell me about your t team, because one of the things that's always struck me about you as a CEO, you always say it's the team effort. It's not just me. Tell me about who you've got on your team that you particularly rely upon. Well, there's several members of the senior leadership team that are just phenomenal. I mean, Mark Royce is our president, and he is the most one of the most knowledgeable, you know, car people, uh, I think, on the globe, uh, in the globe. Um, so he, he does a phenomenal job. And then, um, you know, we have people who have been at the company um, many years, like myself and Mark, Steve uh, Carlisle, who runs North America. But then we have people who have just recently joined the company, like Paul Jacobson, our CEO, Alan Wexler, who came from Sapient. And really, the, the benefit of having all these diverse experiences and being from different industries, but also the deep knowledge of our industry, I think is what makes General Motors leadership 
team special and why we're able to move so quickly. That was Mary Barra, chair and CEO of GM. Coming up more with GM's Mary Barra on the electric future of her company. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was only a dozen years ago that the American auto industry stood on the brink of collapse during the great financial crisis, something President Obama said he could not let happen. We cannot and must not, and we will not, let our auto industry simply vanish. And so the industry went through a painful restructuring to emerge smaller, more efficient, and more profitable. And no sooner did it get through all that than it has to reinvent itself all over again as the nation and the world move to electric vehicles. There are a vision of the future that is now beginning to happen, a future of the automobile industry that is electric, battery electric, plug-in hybrid electric, fuel cell electric. It's electric and, and uh, there's no turning back. Is the industry up to this new challenge? And if it is, will it be the traditional car companies who lead the way? Or will they have to make room for the pure play electric vehicle makers like Tesla and Rivian? Dan Ives of Wedbush says President Biden is creating a huge new market. This is the start of what I believe is a $5 trillion market with definitely Biden kicking off the green tidal wave in the U.S., which is underperformed uh, when we look compared to China and Europe. And Ive says GM is well positioned, that as GM proves out its EV vision over the coming years, the stock will be re-rated more as a disruptive technology and EV play rather than its traditional auto valuation. Kathy Wood of ARK Investments, on the other hand, says the traditional automakers are just too far behind to catch up. The uh, traditional auto manufacturers, if you look at their R&D budgets or you look at GM's, 10% of its R&D, $25 billion in, I'm sorry, uh, capital spending, is uh, allocated to electric. They should be at almost 100 now, given what's about to happen. They have just gotten started, and what they have delivered uh, are cars that don't even meet, uh, whether it's range or other metrics, um, the Model S uh, circa 2012. But in the end, it may not be just electric cars that decide who wins and loses. It may be a cluster of different tech innovations that come with those EVs. Or so says Adam Jonas of Morgan Stanley. Ford is showing 
a bit of um, a bit of urgency too. It's better late than never. Yeah. Uh, but General Motors is our pick under the leadership of Mary Barra, who's executing a phenomenal turnaround here with real action. This company is starting to present itself as a viable, let's say, pre-SPAC um, ETF of uh, Auto 2.0 unicorns. To get the view from the inside, we went to Mary Barra herself chair and CEO of General Motors. I asked her if GM is turning into a tech company. Well, I really think the automobile is becoming a software platform. So by definition, with all the you know software services, subscriptions that we can do, we really are becoming a software company. And I guess if you want to describe that as tech, but the, the thing that I think is important for, for General Motors is we only open up that opportunity when we sell the hardware, which is a vehicle. But that's why we're so excited because we think we have tremendous growth in front of us. So what does it take? to take this uh, time-honored company as a manufacturing company and really make it a software company, use your word software rather than tech. Yeah. Well, I think, it's, first of all, it's we've redesigned many parts of the company. The way we uh, fundamentally design vehicles has changed. We have all of the software to, uh, uh, engineers and that technology all in one group because on a vehicle there's hundreds of millions of lines of code. And with the uh, vehicle intelligent platform, which is the electrical infrastructure in the vehicle, we are now able to do over the air updates and that is giving us this platform to just do all new um, types of services for customers. And it's, it's really an exciting time in the industry. So you have this vision for your company as a software company. Do the young software engineers coming up agree with that vision? There are a lot of other big tech companies out there and it can be Amazon, it can be Netflix, it can even be a car company that starts with a T, that starts as a tech company. Can you compete for the best and the brightest among the software engineers? Well, we can and we are. I mean, we have hired over 8,000 employees to General Motors just this year, and most of them are our software talent. And they're coming to GM, I think, for a couple reasons, but one, because they, they want to be part of creating a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And so the, the transformation that's happening at General Motors, they want to be a part of. And then once we get once they come to General Motors, we're working really hard to make sure they see the opportunity, uh, that it truly is an, uh, an environment where they feel engaged and there's inclusion. So we're seeing fairly low attrition, and again, we're bringing in um, thousands of engineers. If I'm an investor, how do I think about General Motors today? I mean, there's sort of time-honored traditions like price-earnings ratios, for example, that apply to tech. And for example, General Motors, last time I checked, was in the six to seven times earnings, right? Tech is trading up in the 27, uh, something like that. Are you going to move toward that 27 as a multiple? Well, I, we definitely think there's a huge opportunity um, from a multiple perspective because a lot of times people in the past have thought about the auto industry as a very cyclical business. But when you think about um, the fact that General Motors, we have the opportunity to grow with our, our franchises from a nice perspective, but then the EV part is complete growth and the software and services on top of that are growth as well. And then when you look at expanding into new businesses, whether it's uh, OnStar Insurance or what we're doing with Bright Drop, that is more than just an electric light commercial vehicle, but it's a whole ecosystem of how we can move goods better and, and make those deliveries. And with partners like FedEx Express, you know they're seeing the efficiency of the systems that we're putting in place. So Mary, take us forward 10 or even 15 years and let's assume everything you want comes pass. What does GM look like? I mean, for example, you've mentioned it as a software platform with other services that are attached to it. Uh, what percentage of the revenue will come from actually selling the vehicles as opposed to the services? I actually think that uh, we, if we 
uh, fast forward 10 years, I think the software services, subscriptions, and the other adjacent businesses that we can uh, grow into because of the technology that we have will be uh, equal or greater than what we'll have from, a, you know, from selling the vehicle. That, that's my vision, and I think that's well, um, well within reach when we look at the different total addressable markets and the businesses that we're entering. What does that do to margins? Do you expect higher margins on the services than you would normally get on a manufactured product? Well, we see it today. On our businesses like OnStar, we see uh, you know, a, a higher margin profile than we do on uh, the actual vehicle. But let's not forget, you've got to sell that vehicle to, to have access to that. And that's where General Motors also, we have a reason uh, that people should believe that we're going to lead because we already sell more vehicles in this country than anyone else, uh, setting aside some of the limitations with semiconductors right now. And we have the highest loyalty. So when you look at the scale that we have and then the software platform that we can, we can access because of that scale, that's where the growth, uh, I really think, is a huge opportunity for us. As you say, you have some experience in the marketplace with this already, with OnStar, yes. for example, you mentioned. What is the experience tell you about that consumer demand? I mean, it's one thing to be able to provide something that's a good idea, it's another thing for consumers really to want it. Well, we're seeing growth with OnStar, and you know, OnStar, we have over um, 12 million uh, active connected vehicles. We've been in the business for 25 years, so we have a lot of learnings. We actually have over a, a trillion connected miles on the road. And today people can buy a safety and security package, they can buy the connectivity package, they can buy both, and we're seeing growth in both um, both types of subscriptions. Uh, and really the vehicle, you know, there's many people's stories throughout the pandemic where their vehicle became their office because of the connectivity we provide. So these are potentially exciting opportunities. Do they also bring some challenges? And let me name one specifically, cybersecurity. What are you doing as GM to protect the, this from cybersecurity? Well, with the vehicle intelligent platform that we rolled out starting in 19, a big part of the way we redesigned that was with a focus on cybersecurity. We have some of the leading cybersecurity experts in the company uh, from an auto perspective because we recognize how important it is. So it's, it's built on layers of defense and we've had learnings from other industries, but that's now core to our vehicle with the vehicle intelligent platform. So in this world, again, go forward 10 years, uh, I understand you're going to have a lot more services, maybe even more service revenue than vehicle revenue. Uh, what does that do in terms of the overall number of vehicles sold? Are you envisioning a world in which GM sells fewer vehicles, but perhaps returns higher profits? No, I'm, I'm looking for a world where we continue to grow share, and that just continues to expand the growth opportunities with the software. And I think when I look at the Ultium platform that we're putting into market this fall, you know, many other um, traditional OEMs are just thinking about or starting to work on dedicated electric vehicle platforms. We have one. So we can go all the way from a small crossover all the way to a super truck like the Hummer EV. That was Mary Barra, Chair and CEO of GM. Finally, one more thought. Having it both ways, it's what all of us really want, right? Not to have to choose between two things when we really want them both, like getting everyone back to the office without risking more COVID infections, or having the Fed taper without causing a tantrum. But now the Wall Street Journal brings us news of a 36-year-old mother of three from upstate New York who has given us all hope, or maybe just put us all to shame as she does something any of us who have ever picked up a golf club would think was impossible, play golf extraordinarily well and play it really fast. Lauren Cup is the head coach of the men's and women's golf teams at Hamilton College, and she took up the sport of speed golf just after she had her first child. The idea of speed golf is to play as well as you can and as fast as you can. 
And to give you some sense of just how well and just how fast, Ms. Cup just set a new record by shooting one under par for 18 holes in 50 minutes. Yes, that's 5-0 minutes for 18 holes. That's what takes most of us three or even four hours, and that's on a good day. So how does she do it? Well, she carries only five clubs, a driver, a putter, a six iron, a nine iron, and a wedge. And whenever she can, she runs right through water hazards like creeks. And oh yes, she never ever takes more than 20 seconds to look for a ball. Something that you might want to suggest to that member of your foursome who hits the ball into the woods and then insists on trying to find it. But first and foremost, there is one key rule for speed golf. Above all, hit it straight. And at least in that one way, Lauren Cup's approach to speed golf might serve us all in good stead. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.